in December 1863, not too long after his wife died, and while he was caring for his 18-year-old son who had run away and joined the Northern Army in the Civil War, he was wounded in battle, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow penned these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What a lament. We hear this song at Christmas and Advent sometimes, and it captures the tensions of our lives, this desire for peace and for flourishing, for hope, and the stark reality of a world we live in. How can we sing the words peace on earth when we know that there are people being bought and sold? How can we sing the words peace on earth when we're, we read the news every day about violence, when we know people who are very sick, when people we love have died far too early? How can we sing about peace on earth when honestly we don't really have peace? in our homes, or our schools, or our neighborhoods, or our workplaces, or our hearts. It seems hopeless. Perhaps John the Baptist would have joined Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in this song, if he would have known it, because there isn't any peace in prison either. There's no hope. Life is dark for John, literally and figuratively, Herod Antipas has thrown John into prison because of what John preached. John preached, it's wrong for Herod to have married his brother's wife. And so he's in prison. And we can imagine him there, perhaps, trying to configure his ragged cloak into some kind of a mat. He inhales deeply, but chokes on the air because of the poor ventilation and the stench. During the day, a few slants of light come in, but most of the time there's little difference between day and night. The iron chains around John have chafed his skin, leaving open wounds. They're starting to get infected. And he has to try to move his limbs to keep the flies off of them, but he doesn't have much energy because he's not receiving any food. And days and nights start to flow together dreams and daydreams. His ministry in the wilderness seems like a million years ago. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> he chuckles to himself. Kingdom of heaven. And not one I thought was sent. I must have had it all along. And it's not just because John is in prison that he's wondering this. That's actually the least of his concerns. John is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus hasn't done what the Messiah should do. John proclaimed the Messiah who would baptize with fire. 
John read in the prophets that the Lord would come to his temple, that God would come with a vengeance. But there's been no temple reclamation. There's been no vengeance, no fire. Now there's no hope for John, it seems. So when some of his disciples come visit him, perhaps to bring him some food, he sends them back to Jesus with his million-dollar question, the question that has played in his head behind the buzz of the flies, the question he's pondered as he's, as he's inhaled the stench of the prisoners around him, the question that's jerked him awake in the few moments he's been able to sleep. Are you the one we've been expecting? Or are we still waiting? Should we keep looking for someone else? John is looking for a glimmer of hope, hope to sustain him in prison, hope to help him understand his mission and ministry. And how can we ever have peace if we don't have hope? And in prison, hate is strong. And it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And if John, John the Baptist, had this kind of hopelessness, I think we're doomed. I don't, I don't know about you, but I wasn't prophesying from my mother's womb like John did. I didn't go out into the wilderness to preach repentance, eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, John was committed. It's just kind of like if Billy Graham posted on Facebook, I'm beginning to wonder about Jesus, which he hasn't. John is in a dark and hopeless place. Sometimes this dark place is called the dark night of the soul, that, that time when doubt takes up residence and childlike faith and hope go out for breakfast and never return. You want them to return. You want them to come back home. You want to welcome them with a hug and a cup of hot chocolate, but they never show up. And you're empty, unsure of your past walk with Jesus, unsure if it was real, unsure what you need to do differently and dubious about the future. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Experiencing the dark night of the soul is part of many of our spiritual journeys, but that doesn't make it easy. And for some people, the dark night never goes away. The Albanian nun, who we know as Mother Teresa, was one of those people. For 50 years, she privately experienced the deep distress and doubt about God, writing, where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness, and if there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that these very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Mother Teresa confided in her spiritual advisors, writing to them of her desolation, describing her experience as torture and pain. And this never went away. And we all have pain that makes our life seem hopeless at times, or at many times. Broken relationships, sudden sickness, and young, vibrant people. Always being ignored for that leadership position. Abuse, loneliness, the kind of grief you just can't get a handle on. You think you're okay, and then you remember, yes, 
that. And it overcomes you and pulls you out into a sea of hopelessness where you wonder, are you the savior, Jesus? Are you the one? I don't feel saved. I feel vulnerable and insignificant and everything hurts and everyone hurts and there is no peace on earth. And just like John, we lose hope. And so we wait for peace and hope to return, remembering how it felt once, the footsteps behind us, but the hot chocolate grows cold in our hands and the days grow shorter and get darker. We grow cynical, perhaps. The words peace and hope began to sound tinny, like a cheesy Hallmark card, and then Christmas and all this. It starts to seem almost ridiculous. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Perhaps the disciples' question surprised Jesus. They've had to find him. There's no GPS, so they've run around looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and they need an answer fast, because who knows what's going to happen to John in prison while they're away. But Jesus doesn't answer John's question directly. He doesn't say, yes, I am, or no, I'm not. He tells John's disciples to go back and tell John what they see and hear. They're not to relay a, a message. They're to tell a personal testimony. What do you see me doing? What do you hear me saying? Jesus is saying, I don't have to speak here. You may speak on my behalf. You represent me. You've seen and heard. Now go tell. Jesus doesn't give the disciples a logical apologetic for doubt. There's no five-point plan. He just says, tell John what you see and hear. And then he reminds them of scripture. He references Isaiah 35, in which the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the mute shout for joy. And Jesus is talking about himself. Because this is just what's happened in the first 10 chapters of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has healed individuals. A guy with leprosy, a servant, Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus has cast out demons. He stilled a storm. He's made a paralytic walk, healed two blind guys. He's also raised a girl from the dead, allowed an unclean woman to touch him and be healed, cast out more demons, and sent out his disciples to heal and cast out even more demons. Go back and tell him what you have heard and seen. Something is happening. This isn't the vengeance John had expected. This isn't the fire. This is recreation. Jesus' work of healing is both literal and symbolic action because humanity is being recreated as images of God. The images, the people, are being repaired and restored. To the ancient mind, kingdoms and temples are full of images of the gods and kings, and so this kingdom of heaven, John proclaimed, is also full of images of God, real images, not false images. And Jesus is restoring them. Real images that see, just like God sees. Real images that hear, just like God hears. Real images who are active, who move, who do, who care. Restore the temple? You've got it. Jesus is restoring the temple because the earth is the temple and God is sovereign over it. 
The kingdom of heaven is near. Yes, John, you were right. It's slower than you thought it would be, but it is near. And this is where our cosmic hope is. We see a complete vision of God's kingdom in Revelation in the text that was read today. And in this vision of John, and remember, this is a different John. This is John, the disciple of Jesus, the evangelist, not John the Baptist. John sees a lamb sitting on a throne. This lamb looks like it has been slain, looks like it has been slaughtered. So it's all bloody, but it's alive and reigning. And this lamb is Jesus. And this is where the vengeance is that John was looking for. This is the slain lamb, the crucified Christ, the only son sacrificed for us. And because this lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God, was slain on our behalf, we have become a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we are priests in that kingdom. Not only are we created and recreated to be made in God's image, we are made priests, people who can approach God directly on behalf of the world and who can approach the world directly on behalf of God. This lamb purchased people from every tribe, every nation, so that we could rule and reign with God here on earth now. This cosmic hope isn't just for the future after we die. This is happening now. This is our present reality right now. Our cosmic hope is the crucified yet living Lamb of God, Jesus. So go, Jesus says, tell what you see and hear. Be my priests, Jesus says, represent me. I trust you to do this, Jesus says. And the world needs us to be priests. Just like Jesus empowered John's disciples to go back and encourage John by telling what they had heard and saw, Jesus empowers us now to go and tell what we've seen and heard. Our voices and lives must be louder than the voices of hate and mocking. So go and tell. Start by telling your own story, how you have experienced the love and healing of Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers us to combat the oppressive narratives of hate and hopelessness by simply speaking of Jesus' goodness. Go and tell what you've seen and heard in scripture. Go and tell what God has done for you. Go and encourage believers who are feeling hopeless and go and tell the good news to the poor. Jesus is recreating us right now to be the true images of God who see the needs and pains of the world and who do something about it, who hear the cry of the poor and the oppressed. The Spirit equips us to tell of the cosmic hope we're experiencing because of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Go to places where there is no hope, homes, workplaces, neighborhoods, schools, and tell what you've seen and heard. Go to dark places like prisons, God is doing amazing things right now within some prisons through his priests, his image bearers from seminaries. Schools like North Park and Calvin Theological Seminary and others are setting up educational programs that focus on theology and biblical studies for inmates to help them and guide them to experience the hope of Jesus in these dark places. Kelly Gissendanner was one of these inmates who was hopeless. In 1997, she admitted her guilt for plotting to kill her husband, although she did not commit the murder. And 
during her time in prison, Gissendanner met Jesus. Through a seminary program, she read scripture and works by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Rowan Williams, and Jürgen Moltmann. Jesus not only found Gissendanner, he changed her, he recreated her, and she in turn represented Jesus to others. She wrote a book of meditations, Journey of Hope by Faith, that she shared with other inmates. Through the bars, she'd offer counseling and pastoral care, some of it which helped prevent suicides. Prison employees, instructors, family, and fellow prisoners testified of her transformation, her lack of bitterness, and the life of hope she exemplified. She wrote, I try to use the life and light God has given me to help those around me in whatever ways I can. In a prison where women were fed only twice a day on weekends and holidays, she would share her food with others. In 2011, she was the speaker at her theology program graduation, and she said, the theology program has shown me that hope is still alive. I have placed my hope in the God I now know, the God whose plans and promises are made known to me in the whole story of the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist, Kelly never made it out of prison. But her story helps us to realize that Longfellow was right. Hate is strong. It does mock the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail. And Jesus has told us to tell what we've seen and heard. This is cosmic hope in which the deaf hear and the blind see. People are restored to be true images of God. People like Kelly Gissendanner, people like you, people like me. The lamb on the throne, the suffering lamb, the one who was slain, the one who knows our hopelessness and pain and suffering has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. This is cosmic hope. So go tell. Tell what you've seen and heard. Tell stories of Jesus' good work in your life and Jesus' actions in scripture. If you don't know a story to tell, we're going to help you right now. Here at Hinsdale, we've started a scripture performance team, and today they're going to present a story of Jesus offering hope in dark places. Go, tell what you've seen and heard. 